0: Open up with me in your Bibles. We're in Psalm 126 this morning. We'll also have a reading from John chapter 16. Psalm 126 says, When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will, retur- will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. And in John chapter 16, verses 19 to 22, Jesus said, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, And then after a little while, you will see me. I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. When I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. We are in the
1: 126th Psalm this morning. We have been working through the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134. And uh, this morning's psalm is on joy. And I got to tell you, um, <laughs> there are times when you get to a certain passage or, or chapter and you know that week's going to be a difficult week. And I struggled with joy this week. It was a really hard week. And it was good because in the midst of this study, it reminded me where my joy is to come from. And by God's grace, I'll be able to share that with you this morning as well. Um, I don't think that joy would be a term used to characterize the Christian church today by the world. I don't, if we went out and said to people, describe the church, I don't think joyful would be one of their top five descriptions. And yet, it's the second fruit of the spirit listed by Paul in Galatians chapter 5. His love and joy. And so we are supposed to be a joyful people. Um, I was reading on a Christian website. It caught my eye and it was appropriate for this week. Um, someone, they were, they were doing some chatting and I talked like this as if I, no, I don't know how to do this stuff. But... By God's grace, he revealed it to me this week. This one particular person who was on this website, she was looking for an answer, and she entitled her, what is it, a chat? Uh, whatever. She entitled this, My Joyless Christian Life. And listen to what she says and, and see if you can identify. She said, I'm curious if anyone else has felt the way I do as of late. Every morning I wake up, And often my first thought is, you must read your Bible and pray. You haven't done that yet. But it's not within my, I'm sorry, but it is not with a spirit of desire, but rather one of law-keeping, so to speak. My entire Christian walk has been turned into one of, do this, don't do that, no joy, exclamation point. I haven't been to church for nearly two months, she writes, because it feels like the same old thing. What do I do? No joy. Some of the answers were, were good and some were not so good. Um, well, what would you say to her? What would your response be if you had a chance to type in, oh, here's my, here's my answer? If you could take the 126th Psalm and sing it well, it would be a great response. Because the 126th Psalm, the, the songwriter is singing about the joy that we can have in God in the midst of the good times and the bad times. A different joy we get from the world. A real joy, an everlasting joy. And so if you were to respond with the 126th Psalm, that wouldn't be a bad response. Far better than the sum that she got, which we will talk about also. This morning, I would love for you to leave here knowing joy. Experiencing joy. Maybe singing. Maybe laughing. Maybe dancing right out of the sanctuary. The joy that God offers... The 126th Psalm sings to. And I want you to see three things. One, that joy has a context. It has a, a past and it has a future. Number two, that joy has an expression, a right expression biblically. And then lastly, joy, believe it or not, has a personality. So let's, let's look at those. Let's look at the 126th Psalm and joy in those three ways. First, joy's context. Verse 3 Several commentators pointed out that verse three—it's the uh, for my English one-on-one students—it's the it's the topic sentence or it's the thesis of the song. Look at verse three. The psalmist says, "The Lord has done great things for them." The Lord—I'm sorry—the Lord has done great things for us. We are filled with joy, present joy being experienced by the songwriter. But it's not the joy that the songwriter is experiencing is not taking place in a vacuum. There's a past and there's a future. In fact, the, it's bracketed in both. Verses 1 and 2, the songwriter shows the fuel of that present joy is God's past actions, his past miraculous deliverances. And then in verses 4 through 6, it's the future promises that we look forward to. And, and that's good news for us because that means that joy is not a temporary emotional state that you go through. You don't experience joy because the sun is out, the stock market's aligned, your boss is nice that day, and your car starts in the first time. You may be happy, but that's not biblical joy. Biblical joy has a permanence to it, and it has a history to it, and it has a future to it. Let's look at the history first because it's it's really important. The psalmist starts off, and he's talking about what God has done. Look with me in verses 1 and 2. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion... We were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. If you've read through the Old Testament, in fact, if you're doing the study in Judges with us right now in the adult morning Bible study, you see this repeated theme where, where God's people are oppressed, they cry out for mercy, and what does God do? He suddenly and miraculously intervenes and He delivers His people. He sets them free. He brings them home. And what we see here is that pattern again and again being described at a very particular event. And there was some, there was some debate on this in terms of you know, the commentators, but I think they were right. And They're talking about the Babylonian exile and the captivity. In 586, for those of you who don't know this, Jerusalem, after centuries of being a city, Zion set apart for God. It was sacked. It was destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. And in 586, the gates were destroyed, the walls were destroyed, the temple was desecrated, and the people were taken into captivity. For 50 years, the Babylonian Empire said, you cannot go home. An edict. You cannot go home. You cannot go back to your temple. You cannot worship God. And so it wasn't until Cyrus the Great under the Persian Empire in 539 came in, and he overthrew the Babylonian Empire, and he passed an edict the following year. 538, and said, listen, you guys can go home. You guys can know the first time the Jewish exiles in 50 years, over a half century, they were allowed to go back to their city. But it would be another 130 years total until the time of Ezra and Nehemiah when God would raise up people and actually come back to Jerusalem and repopulate the city. And we know that story, right? We've looked at it in Nehemiah where they came back and they rebuilt the temple and they rebuilt the city and the walls and the gates and their homes and they became a people again. But for 130 years... They were oppressed. For 130 years, they were people in a foreign land amongst foreign gods. They were in distress. And so when the psalmist says it was like a dream, they must have been dreaming. Because this was was unfathomable. 130 years, we are a people that are oppressed and in slavery. And then suddenly one day, God intervenes and what happens? We can go home. The edict is passed. Passed. Ezra and Nehemiah, and they're marching home. And they must have been pinching themselves, going, are we really going home? Are we really going home? They were like a dream. You know those dreams you have and you don't want to wake up because it's so good? This was real to them. And it was fantastic. At one time, their harps were hung on the willow trees. And God told them to weep and mourn. But now, verse 2, said, they said, our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues songs of joy. They could not not rejoice. It was coming out of them. Why? They were once captive and now they're free. They were once a people that was was being disciplined by God and now they were God's people again being redeemed and brought home. Great reason to laugh and sing and rejoice. 600 miles some of them traveled, some more with great joy in their heart because God had redeemed them. And so the psalmist is saying, listen, you got to take God's past actions, his miraculous interventions, and take that, that real truth and nurture it. Into your own life. Take it and contemplate it. In fact, we're told again and again in Scripture to tell our children and our grandchildren these stories. Why? And why, do the, why does the Bible tell us to tell stories about God's past actions? So we can have bedtime stories for our kids. So the Sunday school teachers can have something to talk about in the morning. So the little rascals don't go crazy. Yes, and there's a better reason. So that we can remember that this God has a real history and a real past of miraculously intervening in his people's lives and bringing them joy. In other words, joy has a history. Joy has a record that we can go back and go, see, here's God doing it again and again and again, intervening, redeeming his people, bringing us home, bringing us radical joy. God as our Savior. It's a narrative throughout all of sacred scripture, Old and New Testament. God is the Savior. God is the one who redeems. And if you think about it for a minute, in your own life, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior he did this with you God, the creator of all that is seen and unseen the one who has this past record of creating joy he came to you and he redeemed you because you were oppressed and he brought you out of oppression you were lost and he brought you home you were in darkness and he brought you into his light same for you, same for me for all those who know Christ and so we have a history a corporate history going all the way back to Abraham that's your history my beloved you say I'm not Jewish, yes you are All the way back to Abraham, you have a corporate history and you have a personal history of God miraculously intervening in your life and bringing you joy. So the psalmist says, look to the past. Understand the past. Look to God's actions. This is not... We do this, we do this, a lot of us unconsciously. We have, uh, last Christmas I bought my wife one of those... um, digital picture displays, you know, the slides where you just put it on your kitchen counter and you stick a USB stick in it and it rolls through hundreds of pictures. And it's great. So, you know, we're in the kitchen and, you know, we're eating or doing dishes and a picture will pop up. And uh, two weeks ago, Brett, Josh and I were in the kitchen and we're doing dishes after dinner and he's drying or putting stuff away and he sees this picture and he goes, Dad, look! And it was a picture of the three boys all on scooters. We used to live in Boulder Creek on this very steep hill. And we would... We would race down the hill. Mom said no. I said, it's okay. Let's do it anyway, right? And so we go to the, I, I'd only go about 30 feet up. It, they wouldn't die from it. They'd just get seriously injured if they crashed. And so they'd go up the hill and they'd all be on scooters. And I would tell them to go and they would go. And, you know, I was their Sherpa and I'd bring the scooters back up and we'd do this. And it was just, it was great fun and we had many laughs. And Josh, he's, 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 he's sitting there looking at this picture and he's recounting. I can see his eyes are dancing. And he's thinking about all the times that he won and all the times that he crashed and all the b- bumps and bruises. And he goes, can we do that again? <laughs> I said, we don't live there anymore. He goes, can we do it again? And he was experiencing joy based upon a past reflection. His present moment had joy based upon what he had done. Now, if, if we do that naturally as we recall past events, how much more so should we with God as we reflect upon his miraculous intervention in our lives, individually and corporately as a people? That God, who he is, and his saving grace in our past should bring us present joy. And the psalmist saying, think about it. Meditate on it. Sing about it. Sing about God's miraculous work. And it will infuse you with joy as well. But that's not all. That's not the only fuel. There's another fuel here. Another, another means by which to bring us present joy. And that's in verses 4 through 6. And that is, he says, also focus on the promises. Look forward to the future. What does God have in store for you? And the beautiful thing is this. In in Hebrews chapter 13, we are told Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that means that what we know of him in the past, we can know of him now, and we can know of him in the future. In other words, the way God has treated his people in the past, he treats them the same way today, and he will treat us that way in the future. We have a consistent God, a faithful God, right? So the, the exiles coming back to Babylon... If you remember this from Nehemiah, they came back and they were in distress. Nehemiah, chapter 1. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And so they're joyful and they come home and what do they see? I mean, everything's a mess. Their homes are a mess. The temples, everything's a mess. The infrastructure had collapsed. And so the psalmist is saying, listen, keep singing, don't stop rejoicing. You rejoiced when you left Babylon. You get here and now everything's in disarray. Keep singing Why? And he gives him two images. He says, your future's brilliant, people of God. Two images he gives. Look at verse 4. The psalmist says, restore our fortunes a prayer, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, their fortunes had been decimated, right? Their homes had been destroyed, most of them. Their businesses were no longer in place. The, the fields had laid barren. And... Uh, so that when they went back, they said, our fortunes have been destroyed, right? And so the prayer is, restore these fortunes. Use your miraculous intervention, loving grace, and pour it on us again to increase our future. And so what we have here is the, the first illustration they give um, is the Negev was a, a barren, a large barren desert south of Israel. And there was no life there. But during the, during the fall, and especially the winter, the rains would come. And streams would come. And what happens with water? You guys all know this. You have a little dirt in your backyard and it rains. A little bit of rain, a little bit of sun. What do you have? You say, I got weeds. Well, okay. Besides just the weeds, things grow. Life grows. And so a lifeless desert in the winter and fall with the rains of God would bring life. There would be plants. There would be trees. There would be animals. Okay? And so the prayer here is, God, we get home and Jerusalem's a mess. It's a mess. And saying, God, bring your grace to us now. So that we can bear fruit as a people. That we can have families again. That we can plant crops. And we can engage in business. And we can be a civilized people. And and engage in the arts. And sing and dance as a people again. And they're asking God to bring that grace down. And for you, if you do not know Christ, then this is your prayer also. That he would breathe life. That he would bring rain into your drought stricken existence. Because if if you don't know God, then your life your spiritual state is dead. The Bible says that you're completely dead. There's no life in you at all. And so this is your first prayer. And if you know Christ, and you get up every Monday morning, and you feel like you're living a drought-stricken, mundane, week-after-week life, anybody fall in that category? Yeah. He's saying, same prayer. God, pour down your grace. Bring us your rain. Refresh us today with your presence, with your grace, with your joy. You bring it to us. And so the first prayer, the illustration is the rain coming to the desert. The second illustration is in verses five and six. The song that says, Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. And the illustration is evident. Joy for the believer, blessings for the believer will always follow. Times of sorrow. You say, well, what if my whole life is filled with sorrow and then I die? Guess what? You got joy. You got blessings. If you have Christ, you have it. And so in the midst of all this, the psalmist is saying, in the midst of your tears, be patient. In the midst of the sorrow, wait. Don't give up. Don't flee. Don't fight. Wait. Because God's going to pour out his joy on you. And I know this is so, I preach this and you go, Yeah. Well, when it's in it, when I'm in it, it's hard. It's so hard. When, you are, when you're grieving, when you're filled with sorrow, when the tears are flowing, they go, oh, I'm joyful in God. That's hard. And it almost sounds hypocritical for me to say it to you. But the psalmist knows this type of pain. The psalmist had gone through. I mean, this psalmist probably still has scars on his back from the captivity. This psalmist knows coming into the city itself how overwhelming it must be. The city is destroyed. How will it ever be right again? And yet he says, be patient. Sow your tears in God. What are these tears? Why do you cry? Why do you cry? Some of us cry because of just the general calamities that happen around us. In our own lives, in those that we love, in the world. We cry. I mean, tears of fallen man living in a fallen world, right? Some of your tears are sown out of confession. When you confess your sins to God and the tears flow, those those are beautiful tears. Some of your tears are tears for people that you love, that are going through a real hard time. They're tears of sympathy. And you pray for them, and you pray for a means by which to love them and help them. Those are, those are wonderful tears. Some of you are praying, because, and your, your tears are a product of your prayer and your study in the Word of God. Some of your tears are a product of the suffering and grief you're going through. Maybe a relationship that you've enjoyed for years is now over. Maybe, you know, a family that you've seen grow together has been fractured. Maybe someone that you dearly love has died. And those tears, the psalmist saying, sow them in God, sow them in the Lord. Don't, they, let them flow to Christ and his throne, and God will bring blessing and joy to you. In the midst of the tears, in the midst of all the sorrows, verse 6, he who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. What is a sheave? What is that? We sing it. Oh, sheaves. I don't know what that means. A sheave. They go out for the harvest. They gather the wheat. They tie it up. Sheave, right? It was was the fruit of the harvest. And so what the psalmist is saying, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the tears, in the midst of the hardship, sow it in God. Bring it to God. Take all of your sorrows and your worries and place them on God. And he will turn them into sheaves, blessings, fruit for you. The harvest, Job, Joseph, David, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. They all knew the blessings that follow this time of sorrow. They all knew it. They all understood it. The psalmist is saying this. Listen. Sow all of your tears, all of your sorrows, all of your pain, all your suffering that life brings. Sow them in God. And He will finally bring fruit. He say, how do I know? How do you know? Because the future... For those in Christ is brilliant. (laughs) The psalmist is singing as they come back from Babylon into the city, and he's saying, Listen, don't worry. Our future's brilliant. How do we know? We're God's people. What does that mean? That means all the relationships that have been broken, that you fret over now, that you're weeping over now, God says those relationships one day will be restored. Right relationships. Your bodies. How many of your bodies are failing right now, even as we speak? Right, in this very moment, in this chair, your body is collapsing. It's coming apart. Your back is hurting, right? Your feet are hurting. You're getting older. Yeah, I, Okay, I am, all right? One of my players the other day, it was hysterical. I, I coach football, and I wear a hat. And one of the, one of the uh, coaches was complaining about going gray, and I said, at least you have your hair. And the coach, one of the kids said, are you going bald? And I took off my hat, and he goes, oh, my, coach. I'm like, thank you very much. Yes. I'd like it back. I don't want it to leave my head. You know, it's like some uh, uh, virus that's just flying off my head. It's not my fault. But one day I said, Listen, I'm going to have hair again. I, I imagine that we'll have hair again in heaven. Bodies restored, relationships restored. I, the the, the promise is that you are His. You're a son or daughter. You belong to Him. You'll be in His presence. You'll be in His house. He's making a room for you right now. All of that. The psalmist says, that's stuff that you want to contemplate now. It's not just something that's going to happen right now. Contemplate it, and it will bring joy, just as we reflect upon the past, and it brings joy. When we contemplate the future, of who we are in Christ, it'll bring great joy. Another example: if I if I use too many examples with my children, I'm sorry. It's hard coming up with illustrations, so you have to bear with me. Several years ago, my parents were extremely gracious, and they took all of us to Disneyland. All the kids and all the grandkids. And we went for three days, and we hung out in the park, and we had great fun. They wanted to be a surprise. And so we told the children, I don't know, I think it was like two weeks prior about. And I remember telling them, and my kids had never been to Disneyland. In fact, it was the only time we've gone. We told them. And for the two weeks prior to going, they, they, they contemplated, they imagined, because they'd seen pictures, and they'd heard stories from their friends, Right? And so for two weeks, it was. they were thinking about the rides, they were thinking about the shows, they were thinking about meeting Buzz Lightyear because he was the guy at the time they really wanted to meet. It was all about Buzz. And so for two weeks, they had this skip in their step. Why? They had present joy in light of the future reality of going to Disneyland. Past, future, fuel for the joy right now. So the psalmist is saying... There are lots of ways you can try to make yourself joyful. Past and future, current meditations, the Bible says, will fuel your joy in Christ. Okay, if you've walked with Christ any time, any length of time, you know that that means we can have joy with our tears that we can actually have joy in the midst of the suffering. And it sounds it sounds contradictory, maybe oxymoronic, but it's not. The Bible says that if you have God, if you have Christ, that in the midst of the really hard times, you can still be joyful. Not You may not be singing and laughing, but there's that deep sense of joy that's the product of the shalom we talked about two weeks ago. Real joy. And it means that in order to get joy, you don't have to escape it. You don't have to run from it. You don't have to try to, to bury the anguish. The culture, the culture tells us this. You want joy? Get rid of the anxiety. Get rid of the pain. Get rid of the stress. Get rid of people. <laughs> right? And you'll be joyful. And so we try this. When we do? When we're in pain, we medicate. Right? When we're, if, we're, if we're afraid of being hurt, we separate ourselves. If we're risk averse, which a lot of us are, then we just stay out of situations that, where there'll be risk. And we hide. And the Bible says, listen... You don't have to do any of those things. You can pour yourself into people and you can enjoy life abundantly. And when the hard time comes, you won't lose your joy if you know Jesus Christ. That's why it says in the third verse, we are filled with joy. And they're talking about it, the songwriter's talking about it in the midst of hardship. We are filled with joy right now, even though the world looks like it's crashing around us. We got it. So past and future, fuel for your present joy. Point number two, Joy's expression. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. They're brought home. They're like men who are dreaming. They can't believe that they're actually back home again. What's true for them is true for us. We were brought out of the darkness. We are brought home to God. We are in the kingdom right now, even as we speak, seated at the right hand with Christ. This characteristic, which we should display... Which is a right fruit of the Spirit of God growing in us, doesn't mean if you're not. So I got I got to be careful here because I've heard sermons like this and they're dreadful. If you said, you know what, I don't have a lot of joy, I must not be a believer. Okay, that's a wrong conclusion. Joy is not a moral imperative. It's not a command. It is a product of who you are in Christ. It's a product of enjoying Christ and knowing God and walking with God. It's something that comes out of you. It's an expression of what's happening on the inside as a result of God's great work in you. To go too far is to do this, to say, I don't know joy, I don't have joy, maybe I don't know Christ, maybe I don't have Christ, maybe I'm not saved at all. Worse yet, you see someone who's always down going, well, they definitely don't know Jesus. I mean, they're always upset and they're always down. Some of you have suffered. Some of you are going through suffering and pain right now that many of us cannot even imagine. Some of you have gotten to that point where you see life, as this blogger did, as being joyless. I'll pray for you. But it does not mean that you do not know Christ. It doesn't mean that because you're lacking joy right now that you're not saved. What it means is that the joy that you already have in Christ, you're not nurturing. You're not not feeding on. You're not contemplating. You're not having people feed you with it as well. But please don't jump to that conclusion. I don't want anybody leaving here saying, I'm joyless, therefore I don't know God. It's not necessary. But what a blessing it is, right? It's not a necessary condition for the believer. But it is an expression for the one who's recognizing who God is, what he has done, what he will do. In fact... Many people start off their journey to God because they've come to that conclusion that the world offers nothing but joylessness. I mean, that's, that's a way to start the journey, right? Because we try, the world try, we try again and again to bring all those things in, whether it be marriage or children or work, and we can't have the joy. It doesn't last. And God will use that by his grace to turn people and say, you're right, it doesn't last, because joy can only be found in me. Real joy. Real lasting joy comes to those who realize that they are fractured, that they are broken. You see, joy is a result of being whole and complete. Joy is life spilling over. You're filled. And so it spills out of you. Well, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know God through Jesus Christ, then there is no life in you. The Bible says you're dead. So what do you do? What do we do? What did you do before you came to Christ? How did you try to find joy? I mean, we tried it, didn't we? I did. I, mean, I tried it in every way possible. Through sports, through music, through, through sex, through drinking, all those things. You try it, you try it. And what happens? Sin's what? Pleasurable for a season, and then it's gone. And now I'm joyless. I need joy again. You try it again. In our culture, and within the church, I mean, there, there are several things, and we could go off on lots of tangents, but there's one that stands out for me anyway. And that is the, the entertainment industry in our culture. And, I, and I'm not going to bash on the entertainment industry. Because that's not the point of it. But we as a people have gravitated toward that as our means of joy. As our foundation in joy. And so what do we do? We hire people. We pay people a lot of money to sing, to tell us jokes, to perform incredible feats on the, on the football field or the baseball field. Pay them lots of money to receive joy from it. And many of those things are joyful. And we should we should rejoice in the music and, and the good comedians. And there are very few, but the good ones, we should laugh, right? But when we pay people to bring us joy because we're joyless, then they become a means to an end that is highly destructive. I mean, I don't, I don't watch a lot of TV, but when I do, there are times I'm like, really? Someone paid to make this? There's a, there's a competitive show out there. There are a couple. One, have you wiped out? I, listen, I don't, I don't want to hurt your feelings, all right? But that's an unbelievable show. Wipeout, you laugh because you laugh. It's, it's funny. But really? I mean, is this all? I, I got to get home and I got I to see Wipeout because that brings me great joy. That's not, that's not good. Or that other one, um, 101 Ways to Leave, a game show? And people are dropped off buildings and shot out of cannons. and Only to be topped by some of the reality programs. And I cannot say I've seen any of these. I'd like to. I've seen some clips. One from Real Housewives of New Jersey. Be careful if you clap, huh? We can do confession later after we're done, all right? I don't, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not a housewife, but I were, and I lived in New Jersey. I'd be really upset because if that's how they are, that's a terrible thing, and we receive great joy from it. And my wife told me, "Oh, there are several housewives of all these different places." I'm like you've got to be kidding me. And she was, "Oh, they're all the same. They just yelled at each other the entire time." <laughs> Listen, if if this is your primary means of receiving joy, you will always be joyless. It's temporary, it's not lasting, it never lasts. A brother of mine, we're talking a couple years back, and I haven't read about it much, but I'm going to coin it, my phrase, ready? The movie effect. Can I talk to you about this? You go to a movie, you leave the movie, how do you feel? You know, if, if you're inspired, right? In some of the movies, you come out of there and you think, I'm going to live differently because of this two-hour movie, right? I'm going to be more gracious, I'm going to give more of my time and more of my money. How long does that last? An hour? A day? I mean, a week at best. In 1976, you know how many kids my age were drinking raw eggs as a result of a movie? Do you know? Rocky came out. Rocky number one. If you've never seen it, go rent. It's a great movie. Rocky comes out. And so this guy's drinking raw eggs. So I don't know how many of my friends. We got up early in the morning. We had a couple raw eggs and we tried to run. How long did that last? One day. One day. It doesn't last. Here's the biblical truth of the cultural lie. You ready? Here's the truth to the lie. You cannot make yourself joyful. You cannot cannot buy joy. You cannot acquire joy. You cannot make yourself joyful. You say, well, that's depressing. No, that's reality. Joy is a product of God working in you. Joy is is a means by... So God, joy is seeing God, it's knowing God, it's enjoying God, it's following God, it's what happens when we become people who are sold out for Christ and live in light of the gospel of grace. And then joy will come. If you try to do it outside in, you will always end up with a housewife of New Jersey or wipeout, and it will always be, that's it? And you've got to wait a whole other week. You will always be joyless, but in Christ, daily striving, experiencing His abundant grace... Because the blessings will flow. You can make wise decisions to live in light of the abundant grace of God. To say to yourself, I will see God daily. I will sing to my Lord daily. I will pray to my Lord daily. I will seek his face in his word. Not because I have to, because I want to and I will go through my day with my primary meditation and my primary focus and my primary love being on Jesus Christ and not my looks, my, 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 uh, my clothes, my car, my job, my family. It will be on Him, and joy will come. We can make those conscious, willful decisions to recognize that we, too, were once exiled and called home to Jerusalem, that we now, because of Christ... We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, people set apart to glorify God right now that you have that as a result of the work of Jesus Christ. So joy is to be fueled by past and future. Joy is to be expressed as a result of our life in God, not acquiring it or trying to get it, buying it, work it out. And lastly, joy has a personality. What do I mean? Joy has a personality. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, they said, Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. And here's probably the key to the understanding of the entire passage, that they have joy in God regardless of their circumstances. Things can be good, you have Christ, you have joy. Things can be bad, you have Christ, you have joy. In other words, joy does not depart you because joy is not a fleeting emotion. Joy is a person. Joy is God. And if you have God through Jesus Christ, then you have joy. And that means that you can't say that I'm lacking joy if you have have Christ. You don't lack Christ. You lack a recognition of Him, a submission to Him, a love for Him maybe, but you you can't lack Christ. You either have them or you don't. You either have the Spirit of God or you don't. Look at verse 6. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. How is that possible? Because in the midst of it all, in the midst of all the, the anxiety and the stress and the depression and the tears, Christ is with them and in them and working for them. He's never left them. C.S. Lewis, and I've used this quote before, One of the first time I read it, it it was one of those, and it's it's a no-brainer, but when someone articulates it well, you get it. And he said, listen, the psalmist understood pain, a life, probably of of greater pain and misery and sorrow than we could possibly imagine. And C.S. Lewis said, pain and suffering is part of the human condition. You either have experienced it, are experiencing it, or you will experience it. No one can live life without experiencing it. And if that's true... And the Bible says, be joyful always. How is that possible? How can I shed tears of sorrow and be filled with joy at the same time? If you have Christ, then you can. In the midst of those times, God says, I wipe away your tears. In the midst of those times, in those hardest times, I call you to look at me and actually you'll see me. Sometimes more clearly in the pain and the sorrows than you did without Paul says in his closing prayer in Romans chapter 15, may the God, listen, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you get the picture? Joy is not this this temporary Tuesday evening television show emotional response to an external stimulus. Joy is an overflowing of your life in God. It is your light. It's God overflowing in you with others, at work and at home and at school, with your friends and family, with your children, with your spouse. Joy. It's feeling good. (laughs) Yeah, oh, now we're getting to it. It is. But it's not feeling good about yourself, it's feeling good about God. Real feelings for God, passionate love feelings for God. And then His response to you saying, I love you too, way more than you love me. See, that's not possible. Have you in your prayers lately just said, God, I love you so much. And not just saying a lot, I love you, so," but really express that. I love you so much, Father. I love you. And even in the prayer, joy is coming out because you're expressing what God has done for you and who he is to you. It comes out because joy is that person. It's Christ. So the good news is that your joy is not dependent upon your circumstances. You know, you have a good day and you say, oh, I'm joyful in Christ today. I have a bad day. I'm not joyful in Christ today. That's a roller coaster. It's a wicked roller coaster. Get off that thing as fast as you can. It's a bad roller coaster ride. Up and down, up and down, up and down. And yet that's what we see more often than not, even within the church. How was your walk with Christ? Oh, not so good. Why? Well, you know, things are hard with my wife and things aren't good at work and the kids are acting up. And I just, I'm, I'm, I'm lacking joy. Two days later, you see the same person. and thinks, Oh, things with my wife are great. The kids are finally behaving. Things at work have improved. I'm full of joy. That's schizophrenic. You don't want that. You want joy Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, no matter what's happening. And that means you have to have it in the form of a person. And you have to have it in the form of a person who is with you both now and forever. A person who's not just with you, but knows you better than you know yourself, and you know that person as well. Paul said, and he's either lying, or it's one of those verses you go, I want that verse. Philippians 4 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And and people read that the first time, and he knows they were going, Yeah, right. And so he says, I say it again. <laughs> Rejoice. Why? Because your first response is that's not possible right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Impossible. He says, I say it again. Rejoice. Possible. Hard. Yes. Very hard. Yes. But possible. Why? In John chapter 16, Jesus is having this fantastic dialogue with his disciples (laughs) and he's telling them things they don't want to hear. He says to them, he says, listen, I'm leaving. What? I thought we just got started. He says, I'm leaving. Number one. And number two. You know how the world hated me? They said, yeah, they're going to hate you too. Okay? Oh, and something else. When I leave, they're going to kick you out of the synagogues. They're going to treat you as an outcast. Not only that, they're going to say terrible things about you. Not only that, they're going to persecute you. And some of you standing around that I'm talking to, they're going to kill you worse than they killed me. Have a good day. <laughs> Be joyful. I mean, can you imagine their faces? First, they're, they're shocked he's leaving because that's not part of the plan. Right? He's supposed to come in and reign. That's not part of the plan. Secondly, they're being told catastrophic events are going to take place in their life. None of it sounds good. Persecution, being cast out, being killed. What was their response? I imagine it would be just like ours. What? What, what Lord? Fear? Maybe anger? Maybe, maybe a lot of anger because they felt, you, you misled us we're following you because you're supposed to get in that throne and reign in David's name and we're going to sit at your side and I'm going to be your secretary of state, right? He said, that's not the plan. He says to them in the following verses, listen, just listen. He said, I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Verse 22, he says, so with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Do you see the answer? It's so subtle and we can fly right by it. Do you see? So he's saying to them, in light of this this fearful news that he's leaving, in light of the fearful news that they're going to be treated in in ways that we cannot begin to imagine, he says, rejoice because, why? I'm going to see you again. I'm going to be with you again. I'm going to come to... In fact, the word rejoice here, it literally means to be full of cheer. (laughs) Okay? I'm leaving, you're going to die a painful death. Be full of cheer. And that's either completely whacked out or... The cheer comes from Christ. And we see their response. It's wonderful because you'll see me again and you will rejoice. And that's exactly what they did, right? Christ came back and they rejoiced. Why? Why? Because they had him. They didn't lose him. Being in the presence of God, you're complete. You're whole. You're filled. You are who you're supposed to be. Joy will come out naturally. Because you're in, you're, you're in the presence, you are doing what you were created to do, and that is to worship God. And what Christ is saying, listen, if you have me, I'm bringing you back in. Because you screwed it up in the garden, and you removed yourself from my father. And I came down here to do a work to get you back in, to bring you home, to get you out of Babylon, and get you into the heavenly city of Zion. Now, his disciples heard this, and they, they, still, they don't get it. They get it in, a, in a, a few short weeks. They get it. They're not quite on it yet. And what Christ is saying is this. Listen, I'm going to become completely joyless in every aspect of my life. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm, you're going to forsake me. The nation's going to forsake me. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be nailed to the cross. And even my own father is going to turn away from me. I'm going to be a, the joyless man the ultimate joyless man. And if he had said that to his disciples, he'd say, why would you do this? he says, so that you can be joyful forever. I will go to the cross, I will die your death, and I will give to you the grace and the glory and the honor and the love that I rightfully deserve. Not because of anything you've done, but because of my love for you. And I'm going to do this. And he did. He did for them and for us. My beloved, we have no excuse for joylessness. I know why we experience it. I experienced it this week, but it's no excuse. You have a God who has radically intervened in the past, in past human history, and in your life to give you joy right now, if you reflect upon that. You have a God that's made promises, radical promises, about your future. Your personal future, physical, spiritual, intellectual, psychological future, that are radical, that are better than any Disneyland vacation. I know that's hard to imagine for some of you, but yes, better than Disneyland. He says, meditate on that. Borrow from the future. Bring that joy into the present. He says, beyond that though, recognize that you have Christ. And if you have Jesus Christ now, you have all joy. So a question that I would normally ask is, are you joyless? The answer is, for the believer, no. It's impossible for me to be joyless. Better question. Are you lacking in the expression of your joy on a daily basis? And if the answer is yes, then look at the past, look at your future, look to Christ, and experience that joy on a daily basis. How differently would the world perceive the church... If we could say we are a joyful people, how many more people would enter those doors on a Sunday morning if they thought, I'm going to go to a place that's filled with joy? And these are joyful people. I don't get them. They come to work, they're filled with joy. Their boss yells at them, they're filled with joy. They fail in the field, they're filled with joy. They're losing money, they're filled with joy. How is that possible? Jesus Christ, that's how it's possible. So you say, all right, if I could see Christ... I'd be filled with joy. Peter says this to you and I'll close. Listen. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And you do. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. See him this morning through faith and leave singing and laughing. And for those of you that can dance well, dance. Joy. And then make it a part, a deliberate part this week, tomorrow morning. Don't go to work joyless. (laughs) And don't try to buy joy or create joy. Stop and look to Christ and have it flow out of you. Hmm? I'm preaching to myself. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would forgive us first as a church for trying to make ourselves joyful through all the means that the world does. Forgive us, Lord. We know it doesn't last. We know how foolish it is. Forgive us for that, Lord, I pray. I pray, Father, that we would take the wisdom of this psalm ...and we would take the past, your miraculous intervention... ...and we would take your promises of the future... ...and we would bring that into our present lives... ...and we meditate on it. We meditate on who you are, what you've done... ...and what you promised to do. That we would turn our eyes to Christ... ...and realize, Lord... ...that we have all that we need... ...to be infinitely joyful at this very moment... ...because of Him. We have Him. If we have Him, we have joy... I pray, Lord, that by your grace, you would manifest that in our lives and that we individually, at home, at school, at work, we would be known as a joyful people. They would see us and they would see Christ. I pray, Lord, for that blessing to be among my brothers and sisters here and to be upon those in your church throughout the world that we would overflow with the joy of Christ. In his name, amen.